eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hi, it's Nate. So just some background on this episode. It was taped on October 24th, 2019. That was the Thursday before Martinsville Speedway Race Weekend. For the most part, it's not that dated, but we do make a few references to at what point in the season we're at. So just keep that in mind as you're listening. And then the second thing is this was taped at the world-famous Big Oak Table at our NBC Sports Charlotte office which is adjacent to Tryon Street in Charlotte, and the windows that face that street are directly above the Big Oak Table, and so there's a lot of ambient noise that can be heard throughout this taping. Tryon Street can be quite a busy thoroughfare in late afternoon, early evening, which is the time frame for this episode being taped. We did pick up quite a bit of ambient noise at times, so hopefully that wasn't too distracting from this conversation which happens to be with someone who actually made quite a name for himself by constantly talking over the din of race cars at 200 miles an hour. So, nevertheless, enjoy. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Here at our NBC Sports Charlotte studios, we just wrapped up NASCAR America Motormouths, and one of our guests today was David Hoots, who is, I think, <laughs> a legend in the NASCAR officiating world. David, thanks for being here. I wouldn't call me a legend, but I'm glad to be here, Nate. <laughs> this is the second time you've been on NASCAR America, and wanted to have you on the podcast as well to talk a little about what you're doing now. You called your last race for NASCAR, the 2019 Daytona 500. Since then, I know you've been doing um, a lot of work on the sides, business of your own, working on potentially uh, doing some consulting uh, with race teams. I know you're also working with some rule books and some series. Tell us about what you're doing now. Well, the, the one project uh, I started and I've, I've uh, completed one, working on others, working with the series, and taking a different set of eyes and reading the rules. Um, it's interesting that sometimes it's like you can't see the forest for the trees. And when you read it, if you will read their rule book and you'd read it literally, then you would read it grammatically. And I'm not a grammatical expert by no means, but is this what you're really trying to say? And then apply your knowledge and experience with how a race is, is operated or officiated and try to clean it up. And then at the same time, take your experience and look for the loopholes that the competitors would look for. Um, so you would go through it and read it that way two or three times. Then you make recommendations, and then at that point, I let the series decide, is this the direction they want to go or, or is it the direction over here they want to go? And again, it's just to take another set of eyes that um, as you're reading it, you really don't know what their whole direction or what their, their, you know, their goal is to run a race, but how they're wanting to run the race. And is it explained because it's the single source of information that everything that's done around race is evolving around it. So trying to take it and, it and apply that experience to it, and is this really what you're wanting to say, and is, the best, is this the best way to say it, or have you experienced where saying it another way may be better, and you offer that suggestion. Then you go through it and, and, and work on it and try to, try to con consolidate it. I think one of the things that I've learned over time, people have a tendency to over-explain, and sometimes it's just a lot more clear and crisper with less words. Try not to take them down paths that they don't want and let them understand what it is. So 
trying to apply all that and put it together in a package and remember that, okay, this is what you're saying over here and five pages next, you're contradicting yourself. So let's clear up, do we want to do it this way or do we want to do it this way? So there's continuity through it all the way through the rule book. Where do you think, uh, in terms of rule book language, that auto racing series get themselves in the most trouble with too many words or having confusing, contradictory language? Sometimes just in the style of the writing, it needs to be written, I would say, take out the legalese. There's words some people use that are very descriptive, but they don't have to be where you need to open up a dictionary and review what the word means. Is there a better word? Is it is a simple word? I'm not saying anybody that's out there that's reading it it's, it's, is simple-minded, but the rule book may have to be applied in certain areas in the back garage of a lower series at 11 o'clock at night. The inspector or the official doesn't need to have to try to explain what it means. It's, it needs to be simple enough that the competitor can understand what the rule is instead of a bunch of garbly goop. How many series have you been working with on this? I've, I've been working on, this will be the second one, okay. uh, and I've, I've reached out to um, some different groups to see if they're interested. Some series haven't wound up the season. Some seasons or some series have, and but you don't know um, when, that, when their season ends up, what's their timeline? Is it a printed book? Is it an online book? If it's a printed book, you have to have a bigger lead. And it may be that by the time I reached out to them this year, they've already started processing next year's rule book. Well, there's always opportunity next year or read it in the start of the season and sit there and say, have you thought about this, this, and this? And if they have, it's not try to say this is right or wrong. Have you considered this? And is this, is this a better way to say it? Are you concerned mostly, David, with just race procedures and the technical side of the cars and how they're built? I'm, I'm, I'm far, far more experienced with the race procedure. Right. Over the years, I started out as an inspector and worked my way up. And as you work your way up through the short tracks, you had to know the inspection part of it. But as you were migrating over to the management of the race, you started learning more and more on it. On, on the procedure side and have watched over the years in my career at, at NASCAR for 46 years how that has evolved. It was, um, we, we found a copy of one of the first rule books. It was four pages and the race procedure was probably less than that. It, 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 it would describe just the flag rules because the flag rules back in when racing first started was the only communications that the officials had to the competitor. They right. didn't have radios, didn't have caution lights. Right, right. You just sit there and the flag was telling the driver what he could do and what he couldn't do. And it's evolved. And then as as the racing has evolved, the rules have had to expand. Sometimes uh, one of the things that I've, I'm experiencing now is that you feel like it's being over-officiated with all these little rules that are put into it. And it shouldn't be the competitor doesn't understand it. And then there's misapplications or they think this is the rule or this is the interpret or this is the way the rule is applied at this track and not here. So there's this element of confusion in there that I don't think anybody intends to do, but it it migrates out to the garage in in that uh, in that way. You need to try to clean that up. And one of the easiest ways is to simplify the rules. The other thing, like in the in the short track world, the rule may be addressed in the driver's meet and never addressed in the written word. So when the new competitor shows up, is he aware of all the rules that are in place? And the likelihood is no, no, he's not. If you can put it out in a simple form in some type of documented deal, because you know we're, we're going away from paper and, and online stuff, and be able to re- review it and it's simplified, then it'll, it'll make it a lot better for the for the competitor, and it also makes it a lot more fun for the for the spectator. As you elevate your way up there, you'll see more rules and more rules and more rules, and it's because the rules have been written due to situations. And trying to go down that path in in lower series is is probably not the wisest of things. You're you're writing a rule and you're trying to explain it for one and a. 500 opportunity for it to happen. Short tracks, 
Very many, very few of them race live under a yellow flag. They don't have live pit stops. So you don't have to have all the, the mechanics that, that NASCAR employs on pit stops, pit road procedures, and whatever. Um, uh, uh, just layer upon layer of complexity on it. Does that help the race? No. Now, in, in those NASCAR series, it's important because it's protecting one competitor from taking advantage of another. Mm-hmm. But it seems like also as you, as you throw the yellow and you pack the competitors up, there's as much competition right there because the race never stops. And that's one of the things that's, that's unique about a race. It doesn't have a stop. It just slows down under the caution. But everybody's still advancing to the end goal, which is your finish position, and still can gain and lose. So it's a totally different animal than any other type of competition. Baseball, you have a natural stoppage. Football, basketball. And the other, the other kind of thing that's unique about a race is that there's 40 competitors or the starting is racing against each other, where all other sports, for the most part, is one team against another team or one competitor against another competitor. Even in football, because you, you, know, you have the offense and the defense, it's still one-on-one. It's not multiples against multiples. And, and then the other part of it is most uh, stick-and-ball sports the field or the the playing field is the same. It doesn't change every week. Mm-hmm. You can ha- yeah. you can have a you can have a muddy field or you could have a dry field or uh, a fast infield or a slow infield. But both are week to week as the different tours go to different tracks. They present challenges with hat, which a lot of times are addressed by rules. Yeah, I think that gets missed a lot. I mean, obviously, baseball stadiums the dimensions are different in terms of how far the walls are, but mm-hmm. the general shape is the same. Whereas you can go to a mile and a half track or short track mm-hmm. or road course. <laughs> Everything is different. And it, and it all plays into it because it, and not necessarily just the outside, uh, outside walls in the outfield, but the foul territory on both sides. Mm-hmm. At, at some places, the catcher takes two steps and he's turning, tumbling over a, a fence. And the next thing, he's got a 40-acre field there to catch a fly ball. So it, it's those things, they're important. And they're addressed in ground rule meetings with the referees and the managers. But in a race, this is moving week to week to week to different different venues. The rules that you race under at Talladega are completely different. I won't say they're completely different, but I'm not a lot more applicable to Martinsville or vice versa. And the car is not the same. So yeah, There's no yellow line rule uh, mm-hmm. as we speak here ahead of uh, the race this weekend at Martinsville. No yellow line. Th- thankfully. So you hit on something there that I think is interesting, David, in the amount of rules that especially like the major league racing series have. And I feel like this is a discussion that's come up more and more in the last few years where you hear it from not just Cup, but IndyCar, F1. They're developing lots of rules to govern how these races are officiated. Is it somewhat of a byproduct of as you go up the ladder to major league racing series that you're going to have more sophistication, better teams, and they're just going to be better at sort of finding loopholes and finding ways that you need to develop rules to like keep them in a certain box that is legitimate for competitive integrity. I, I, I think it, it is definitely a byproduct of it. Um, if you go back into the early nineties when the closing of the pit road mm-hmm. was established, it was done just to be able to manage the race to put the caution car in the right position in front of the leader. That was that was the reason for it. The byproduct of it was, though, all of a sudden, it allowed a lap for the cars to catch up and get nose to tail to come on pit road. And beforehand, it hadn't been it hadn't been that way because you could turn down pit road at any point. There was a risk versus reward if you could pit early, get back out and have to wait for it to sequence through, you could gain track position on it. When you close the pit road, the byproduct was is that you shifted the ability to gain spots a lot easier on pit road by the speed of the crew. The second compounding factor was when you had a a major accident and a fatality on pit road, you had to incorporate more rules. You had to pit in the box because at that time you had no way to manage the speed. It was... It was, it was a manual calculation with a stopwatch, but it wasn't very accurate. So the rule was you had to pit within the box, and that rule's still there. It was to make the driver have the car under control when he pulled into the box. 
there was there's there's been gamesmanship on pit road from the first time you ever came on pit road where you would leave a tire where would you leave the jack everyone on precipitated and created another rule that somebody had to manage nascar has gone through this evolution this year of, of the uncontrolled tire that uncontrolled tire has been there for years and trying to manage it in a black and white illustration is hard uh, it, it, it's, it still has a subjective nature to it, but I think right now it is as it's managed as well as it can be, but it's not black and white, and it never will be black and white. You have to, to me, you have to let the referees have some discretion on how they're calling it. Um, when, I, when I started working my way up, I felt like every rule ought to be black and white. Every rule ought to be black and white. And now I would sit there and say, no. It's, it, it can't be black and white. You've got to trust the people that you put in charge and give them the authority to make judgment calls. And they will second-guess themselves to the cows <laughs> come home. Uh, they, they, yeah. they, they, they want to be right, but if you, if you took the famous survey, 49.5% say they're right, 49.5% say they're wrong. So the, so the official is working in a 1% opportunity. He's sitting there on the fence. He's, he's kind of damned if he do and he's damned if he doesn't, but he's got to make a call and let's live with it and move on. And a lot of times the court of public opinion is more to, well, you hurt my favorite driver, but you didn't help my favorite driver. And then as you're, as you're going through the penalty process, you can't turn your back on a penalty and, and because if a, a violation's there and you don't call it, you're penalizing the rest of the competitors. If there's a penalty and you call it, you penalize the guy that created the violation. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. So you're better off calling all your violations. The, the, the point being is that there's no way you're going to get a consensus of opinion every time. It's just not there. And you, you, know, you can look at something, you can look at the visual optics of it. Uh, I think you go back to uh, New Hampshire this year where it didn't look like when um, I can forget the car that came on pit road but it was right to the rule but the optics were terrible but the rule had been adjusted a couple of years prior people watch that and it, it illustrates well this was the rule five or six years ago well that's wrong yeah <laughs> but it was what it was five or six years ago right. now it's this is what the rule is so have it in a way that you simplify it in numbers that you don't have as many rules as you have. And the other thing is make them as crystal clear and as, a signal, as to officiate as you can. Talladega, with its position of the start-finish line, is a good place to try to apply a rule and see if it works because the way you're counting the lap to the start-finish line, it will really challenge a time penalty or a lap penalty because you're pitting before you get there. So the thing you just mentioned about New Hampshire, that was Eric Jones uh -huh. had pitted. And the controversy around it, like even the team wasn't sure if he was going to get penalized because essentially like it was one of those, he had faked going in and, and the commitment line rule had changed in mm -hmm. the last few years. Um, yeah. And there's probably been a lot of instances like that over the last the 10 or 15 over years. The, over the years. And, and Nate, that's one of the reasons I think there's an opportunity there to help the race teams go through these rules. And, and even though the, the rules are put in the rule book and they're highlighted of what's changed, if you don't go back and read the rule or the way to help your memory, if you've got some kind of story to go with it, It'll, it'll ingrain it in your mind to how the rule works. If it's, well, this is what the rule is. It, you don't take it as deep. Sure. And, sure. And, and having watched a lot of these rules being developed over the years and how it happened and knowing the backstory, when you share that, well, that makes perfect sense yeah. why you're doing it that way. So if you, can, if you can explain the rule and apply the methodology behind it, you can help the team. And it, to me, the, the way the teams are in the competition, one saved violation during the race, because each position is a point, could be 40, 40 points. I did an analytical study of last year's violations. The championship organization uh, had 22 violations, which is over 36 races and, and three cars, is really nothing. This is Logano's number 22. 
Had no, no. I, I say organization. I did it by oh, okay. Penske. Gotcha. Penske. Okay, Penske across the board. Okay. Uh huh. And they, you know, so Joey won, but I used I used that as as the the difference. I looked at another team that has championship contenders this year that had 78. 78 times of an average of 30. How many more passes do right. they make to have to get to those points? But some of them you can't. You can't educate them to stay out of the penalty, pitting early. If you have a damaged vehicle and you're coming in with a flat tire, stuff like that. Yeah. I can't. Speeding. Speeding. <laughs> you can't fix that. Well, well, yeah. well speeding, speeding is one that if somebody was educating the driver, I think in a manner you would educate them, when is it time to apply risk to try to gain reward? Right, right. And when is it not time? Because the worst you're going to do probably is two positions. But if you lose, you're going to go back 15 or 20, whatever's in the lead lap. So educating them, adjusting the digital readouts to give them a little bit more. And then the other part, some people you just can't help. They'll get caught up in it. But those kind of penalties, you're going to incur them. I can't teach you. Other ones, you can avoid them. Or you can you can sit there and be able to manage them better. Go back to Atlanta this year when the caution came out during the round of green flags. Let's use Logano again. If he realizes that the wheel's loose, he could have came in on the next yellow and, and lined up one position behind. But his goal was to restart on the outside because it's such an advantage at Atlanta versus yeah. the inside row. That was the goal. That was the focus. I need to get out. I'm going to line up. I'm going to restart on the front, on the outside. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive, and you will. But he, could he have come back, gave up two positions? How many points did he just gain? He may not have yeah. won the race, but how many points we have gained other than taking the unscheduled pit stop later? The same token with, the, with Truax's car, he's on pit road. Could he have drove through, came out, and been at the end of the lap instead of getting called a lap down? and having to start further back. You don't know it, but at that point, if the spotter is educated and skilled and the crew chief has entrusted him to be able to make that split-second call or the crew chief, because the crew chief's view is terrible, there's how you, how you, you may go from finishing 10th to stealing a race. All above board, but you have to know how it's all applied. The, the other part of it, you. I think I can help as you walk through the mechanics of how things are done. Why does it take so long for this caution to come up? Well, this information is being fed into you, whether it's coming in from a turn spotter, coming in from the fire truck, and it's being relayed to the emergency services director, and he's telling the race director there's something over there, or the TV camera pans, or you actually see it. You don't, it's the time lapse from when it's observed to get it to the person that's making the decision, person or persons that are making the decision. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So this is what you're, you've been doing, uh, this research and offering to consult with teams and help them and like that, that's navigating the, the waters mm -hmm. of the rule book. And again, just to, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up this New Hampshire example because I, I did it. I talked to Eric Jones and his crew chief, Chris Gale, that day about it. And, you know, you talk about like that difference between can the positions make a difference? I mean, he finished third that day. Uh, and w what happened there was NASCAR had changed the rule where in the past they could have two tires below and they had the pit. Where, and the NASCAR had changed the rule where dri only drivers with four tires below the, the commitment line had to enter the pit. So Jones had gone over the box with his left side tires below and the team and him both had thought he'd screwed up and then realized... No, we hadn't. So he ends up finishing third. I put him in a really good points position down the stretch, helped him win at Darlington, make the playoffs, and all because, well, in this case, they didn't really know the rules probably as well as they could have. And the, the, it's situations like that that you're talking about that can make that big difference for a team. It'd make a big difference. The second thing is play that lap out. Now they're not sure. So you, you have stopped the thought process on the pit box. Do I pit or do I not pit? Okay, I wait another lap and three more pit that are in the lead lap. Now I'm going to start back even further because the race hasn't stopped. The concept also goes along the same lines. If you watch major league teams in baseball, football, I'm sure somebody is paying somebody to come in and explain it. 
and walk them through the rules, whether it's the league, whether it's Major League Baseball. I know it occurs in college football, especially in the, in the scrimmage games, that the referees will come in and talk to them. This rule is different. This is how we've all agreed that we're going to call holding or or whatever the penalty is, um, we, we won't go down pass interference. That seems to be a whole other different topic. But again, the player and the coach understanding it helps them because they're making real split, real-time decisions based on that. There, there may be that, that outlier rule, that quirky rule, um, some kind of kickoff or punt on the kickoff that you – if you did this, you got a free kick or what? I mean, the, the free kick rules in football, I haven't kept up with football. But it's yeah. like, okay, if you do this, yeah. you can kick a field goal. Oh, I know. Recently, it was the Panthers. Right? Yes, that, yes, that, yes. They didn't know it was some sort of situation with a punt or something. And Ron Rivera knew, hey, I can have my guy attempt a field goal from this spot with just, mm-hmm. just as a free kick, basically. That's three points. That may, yeah. That's the winner, the, the, the difference of winning and losing knowing those rules this is this is uh what i have been working on and this is what i'm going to continue to work on with the goal hopefully to have it up and completely running and being able to communicate with the teams before next season and see if there's any interest and, and you know what if if they feel like they have a good handle on it fine i i got a feeling though they won't have the knowledge of the experience over time because it seems like it's a younger group coming in. There's a bunch of very smart engineers making decisions. They can analyze stuff, but if they haven't seen it to ingrain it in their head, they're again, they're looking at a bunch of computer monitors. And they go back on Monday mornings, and, and I'll go back to your days at NASCAR, you'd be called on Monday or you'd be, hey, can you walk me through how this happened? We're looking at our data. And sometimes the data is correct, but they're applying the wrong application of what it's telling them and they're seeing can can you explain that to me so i think there's a big benefit there i would i would go so far to say there would probably be race directors at at lower levels that could help them instead of well this is the rule yeah you understand the rule but do you understand what's behind the rule why it's done that way so it's, it's like let's take it a level deeper and see what you can do with it. All that context helps. So you're, you're very much, it sounds like, in early days in this process, David. Mm-hmm. So cup teams, Xfinity teams, truck teams, any team that would want to help. Any, any team. Yeah. I, I also looked at, it like, lower levels with, I don't know, I don't want to offend anybody, but <laughs> let, 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 let's say there's some series that have rental cars, and they get the sponsoring father or family or company to come in and rent the car for the weekend. Are they going to try to invest all they can into helping that driver have his best finish? Or are they sitting there saying, let's hope that vehicle is put back on the trailer and we don't have more work to do? And my guess is they're not giving him the absolute best consultation they can. I don't think it's done deliberately, but that would be their end goal. Here, here is Joe Crew, Chief. This is the first time I've seen him when he showed up to the shop and we were fitting him for the seat. Yeah. And let's get all this. He's, he's mechanically worried about it. But the finished position, is he really engaged? Now, the, the, the next level's up. I think it's no question. They're, they're trying to have the best finish. But too often you kind of see that in the, in the, in the back half of the garage. So we talked about the, the number of rules and, and that being a I think a hot topic often throughout seasons now is there anything that could be done do you think to lessen the rules be it NASCAR or F1 or IndyCar or any I mean is there any guiding principle that you could see that maybe if they were to overhaul a, a rule book like here's what you should do to, to strike out some of the things you, you can you can suggest some things but again you've got to I think the sanctioning body has to take a look and what's their end goal and if they don't feel this change is beneficial, they will leave it as is. I'm sure that over the years I've suggested things to uh, NASCAR that hadn't been implemented. I think, in my personal opinion, it would, it, would make, it would improve the product, but that's not my decision. My input is, here's my suggestion. You can take a look at it, and, and at the end of the day, you're, you're managing it, and I'm just trying to give you right. my opinion. Yeah. That rule book you said you found that was four pages? Mm-hmm. Would that have been the 40s or 50s? I, 
I want to say it was the 50s, early really? 50s. Okay. It was yeah. early 50s, and it was very simple, <laughs> very simple. It didn't have no black flag with a white cross. And, <laughs> um, it, it didn't have anything about stages or, or uh, freezing the field or, or these things. It was, it was go, go green, turn left, come back, let's do it again, <laughs> which, which – at the end of the day is, is what a race should really be about. And yeah. two, two or three people competing and trying to pass each other. And again, you've, you've got all these parameters that you're dealing with and all these different stakeholders and the things that it, it, it affects it. Does it help you to go back and look? You said that when you sit down with these teams and show them, here's why this rule exists. Here's what, what the actual context is. When you look back at historically, does it help to see how things evolve? I mean, do you ever go back and look at rule books, not just from 50s or whatever, from other decades and say, let's, let's figure out the, the progression of why we're doing it this way, officiating? I've, I've got a collection of all the, the printed rule books that I had uh, over the years because it was part of, of uh, your membership, Yeah, which takes me back to 73. And it went from a little, it, it would fit in your back pocket <laughs> but it would barely hang out Yeah, yeah. to it fit in your back pocket. And it was about three eighths of an inch thick <laughs> and half of it would fit in your back pocket and it would hang out. And it went from a handful of pages and it just kept growing. But it, it, it uh, to the defense of what's going on, everything kept getting more sophisticated and had to be detailed in greater detail. I think one of the things that, that NASCAR is doing now uh, you're you're still having to write a written rule, but the use of CAD drawings has has evolved. I just I think back though of the of the day of the mechanic, and some of them were extremely smart. I don't know that Smokey Unic was given enough credit because a lot of his information was reading airplane research stuff and applying those kinds of scope. So. Did Smokey have an engineering degree? No, but he was smart enough to read it. Then you look at the next guy, and I, I, I can't, no name comes to mind. But I do know that there was mechanics that could not read and write. Yeah. If, but if you sit there and said, hey, Nate, what wrench dot, or you, if you were asked, what wrench dot, go over and get a 916 box in and, and get this, and you can take that apart. Or he would lay up under the car at night and this is where the innovation has been lost. And figure out bump steer angles and geometry yeah. that he didn't even know what geometry meant. He just knew what these two tires were doing and what they were doing when they turned. And how could he do it? And could he take it over, heat it up, bend it, and reposition it and make it work? And did it last? That innovation, sure. I think, is somewhat lost. And it's even more so now because nobody's taking a part that was from a of a stock car, it's all a specialized part. So that innovation's gone. Now the engineer's sitting there doing the same thing, the way he's doing it, he's doing it on CAD drawing and he's going here and printing it in a, in a plastic 3D printer, looking at it so he can touch and feel it, but it's not the same. And then with that same thought, you lost all these characters that racing had. If you, if you just went back and look at the great engine builders, there was there was 20 of them and now it's it's three companies three or four companies and you you as a reporter you go talk to this guy or you would you would talk to dale senior well spanny built this great engine down here in the shop and he <laughs> he ported the heads by whatever and then then you'd hear uh robert yates had been over here grinding for three days up in junior shop when he was up there and it's it's like yeah all that's gone yeah so you you you've lost these characters or somebody ought to sit down and record everything that Leonard Wood ever says. I mean, that is that is a Bible, A to Z, of how you got from here to here. There's all this tribal knowledge there that needs to be, like you said, like Smokey Unick didn't have computer animated drawings, but he had his own versions of laptops and engineering simulations. It, but like you said, he didn't realize that was what it was, but it, he was it, doing all that stuff. He could have been on a dirt four, yeah. or, or in Leonard's case, what, what is it? Um, is it a birch tree? Yeah. The birch tree <laughs> out in the yard that's right. still there, that they, where they would work under the car? Or you, or you would remember back when it was a straight axle, you would heat the axle up, hook it to a chain, and try to bend the axle. It's just as crude as whatever, but that's the way it was done back in the day. You look back at, and, and I grew up a, a Glenwood fan, 
they were smart enough that they moved the seat back for weight transfer. Glenn was never a large man. He, he was probably 140 pounds dripping wet, but they knew that if they put the weight on the left rear tire, that was the drive tire coming off the turn. It was a straight axle car, so the car would go through the, the left front would lift, and it would never touch the surface going around the turn. So the right front was doing all the work. But it was, it was old school, or the woods were, were very instrumental in understanding tire stagger with, with Pearson in, in that heyday. And, it, you know, it's a simple illustration. Take a styrofoam cup and watch what it does when it rolls, knowing the circumference. Now you're measuring, the, you're, you're not measuring, you're changing the circumference as much as you're, the spring rates of the sidewalls with, with a, a tenth of a pound of pressure. <laughs> is, is, does that make for good racing? <laughs> well, yeah, it makes for good racing, but it's, it's, mm. yeah. So how do you, is there any way to recapture that innovation that you're talking about as, as NASCAR is obviously is moving toward a more spec type series with this next gen car? Is there a way to keep some of that, that you, stuff you're talking about? You, you would hope so, but what's the old saying? How do you unring a bell or take a bite? <laughs> you put a bite of the apple back and yeah. it's, yeah. you, you can't untrain them. The direction that it looks like they're heading, I think in one hand, you don't want more inspection. But as you bring it closer and closer together to keep the playing field even, you're going to have to have it because you have 40 NASCAR inspectors. I won't say competing is not the one I'm trying to work, but they're trying to keep corralled 200 engineers. Right. And right. each engineer has 25 crew members. Yeah. They're always outnumbered. NASCAR is always outnumbered. They're, they're totally <laughs> outnumbered. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's like probably uh, the Penske group with their engineering and probably Stuart Haas, they have a, a large resources of engineers. And even more so in Stuart Haas with the F1. Well, if the engineer finds something here on the F1 car and he's in charge of wheels, somehow or another it's going to go over to the cubicle to the next engineer or vice versa, or he's, he's just totally focusing on wheels mm -hmm. or gidgets or widgets or what. So that evolution is going to come. When you're, when you're measuring something to a thousandths, back in the day when, when Coach Les Richter had me go do IROC races, I went to Michigan one day, and it's drizzling, and I'm walking around the, the, the garage there looking at because it's the first time I'd been at an IndyCar race. They had a platform with a diamond-decked, and they had rifle cases with micrometers and mics measuring the, the frame rail heights. And I said, man, this is not a good sign. <laughs> I was still used to watching the guy pull out a tape measure and a little thin tape and do the circumference of the tires. And, and the weights were probably calculated on feed mill scales. And now everybody's got these platforms. They do this and their micrometer. And, that, and yes, they're taking it to the, to the nano inch. Has it really improved the product? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a big question I think a lot of people have to ask. I think there's some of them. A lot of people scratching their head about it. So you spent 31 years in the tower, David? Is that right? 30 years in the tower? Uh, 88 to 19, yeah, 31. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how involved were you on the rules side? Because obviously everybody knows your voice on the radio and how familiar you were there and you were the word of God when it came to adjudicating the flow of the races. But the rule book side, maybe we didn't know about that as much. Were you involved with, as they made changes and procedures intimately with everything they did there? Mike Helton asked me to join NASCAR full-time. And I was still driving the UPS truck. And I needed to get to a certain couple of certain plateaus as far as the benefits and the retirement and stuff. But... Being at UPS for 20-some, 20 27 years, I had a, a pretty good bank of days off. And as we started adding rules, we would start scheduling when we were working on it. Everybody that's using a computer now knows the term of cut and paste. We were there with mimeograph sheets back in the day, cutting out two lines off of one and pasting it in there because you had the now Xfinity series and now Monster Energy were being written by two different directors. The end result was that you probably got there. It was how it was said you didn't get there. So it's like you're reading two different rules. Now the end result, 
you ended. So we started working on consolidating that and simplifying it. So if you're saying it over here again, again for the continuity, for everybody, we'd start work. Well, this was back in the early '90s that we would schedule a couple of days, and you would go either down to Daytona or off-site somewhere and work on it. And we would get locked in in a room. Um, and work on the rules and it was sticky notes tape paste before you even had computers a vivid memory of the rule book meeting was we were in richmond right after the richmond race when the 9-11 tragedy happened and one of the girls from the Charlotte office called me are you watching the tv no what's happening a plane just crashed in the world trade center so we stopped take a break see what's going on the next one crashes but we were there. We worked on it the next day. And then some, some of them left and went back to Daytona. We stayed an extra day and said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna drive, by this time they've grounded all the airflow. We're gonna drive to New Hampshire. So a group of us ride up. Uh, we leave Richmond, we get, get about to uh, Scranton, spend the night in Scranton, drive and get within an hour of New Hampshire. Race has been called off. So instead of having some of the delicacies that you have out of New Hampshire with the, with the, the lobsters and whatever. We're sitting there eating lunch at the Wendy's, <laughs> turn around and drive back to Scranton at the same motel we just checked out out about 12 hours ago then came home the next day. But that evolved and there would, there would be sessions that you sit there, uh, one of them uh, was quite boring, but you had to describe all the bars of the roll cage. A bar, B bar. I mean, yeah. this is a lot of fun, and 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 every one of them you'd have to you'd have to write. It's got a convex shape, and it's made out of ASCS industry standard ninety three forty seven Bluetooth whatever whatever metal, and then you'd go to the next one uh -huh. because the bars were not named, and you were getting different heights of them and whatever to to standardize it. So some of them were were quite intense. Some of them. Uh, redundant and painful, uh, but you also could talk about things that would happen during the course of the year. You'd take your rule book and you'd make a note, we need to work on this or we need to work on that. Um, and then you you would work on it and then you'd move forward and, and some major procedure would change, AKA like racing back to the flag. So we, we have the race again at New Hampshire. Uh, we make the decision to go down the road of freezing the field. We're sitting there, John Darby and I, down at the R&D Center and a couple others. Can we put this procedure together? And that Friday, we roll it out at Dover, shooting from the hip to try to figure out all the nuances. Yep. yep. We do a pretty decent job until we get to Rockingham the next spring because yeah. we hadn't accounted enough for the pit road. Have some issues with that, we go back to the drawing board and work. So we knew that any time you make these kind of changes, there would be an evolution, there would be some painful growth to try to get it right. It's pretty doggone close. The next step would be um, to where the calculations could be, should be generated by GPS and not going back into the bedded part of the, of the track. And, and I know that NASCAR is working on that, right. but that would be, the, that would be the, the next step. So, Something that happened back in some tracks a quarter mile back, and yeah. others it's 250 yards. If you have a real-time freezing of the field where you know where every mm -hmm. car is at every moment of the, every lap, then you can would, avoid it would, loops. And it it would that. be a lot easier. Yeah. It, it would be a lot e And if you had that, you would have never had to institute the rule of closing the pit road because you always knew who the leader was. Yeah. I yeah. mean, so it's yeah. – there's – now let's – 80, 90 – it's 29 years you're down the road, so – it's an it's an evolutionary process. I remember that 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 meeting. So, so September two thousand three, the New Hampshire races, where you guys made that decision after Dale Jarrett was almost in a really unfortunate situation, mm -hmm. racing back to the yellow. He almost got hit. You guys made that decision. We're going to start freezing the field. We're changing the way. No more racing back to the caution. I remember 
Dover, you guys had a meeting. Reporters weren't allowed, but we we stood back about I don't know 100 feet, and I, there were must have gone for like a half hour, and I don't know probably two or three dozen questions mm-hmm. from drivers about it uh, going into that. Was that when you look back on major decisions you were involved in in terms of rules changing and the way NASCAR races were run? Was that probably one of the biggest ones? Was changing relation I, back to the I would I would think that would have to be the yeah. biggest. It has to be because it changed all the dynamics. You went from something that was it's very simple yeah. when you race back. It's it's not subjective to a subjective system. And then all the offshoots of that, again, it magnifies what's being done on pit road. It allows movement of safety equipment, the evolution of, of the all the safety initiatives and those type of things. It, it, it was funny, in, in that meeting, Brian France was in attendance at the driver's meeting. And I had worked with Brian, but I, I can't say that I, I knew him very well. The next day, I got a phone call, and he left me a voice message telling me, thanking me for doing a really good job. Because it was, you're right, it was about 25 minutes <laughs> of, I won't say off-the-cuff questions, but t- to be fair about it, Mike Hilton, John Darby, all of us were working on we We came up with all these questions that we had. We brought in our scoring team. What do y'all think? To try to get it all worked out. No, no really different than what we did um, when we went to double file shootout restarts mm-hmm. and, and worked on that. Um, we, we figured out what we wanted to do. I think as much as a bigger project, um, Karen Mason Cup, who handles our training, had to put it up and make a movable PowerPoint to illustrate it. And what she had to do, I'm sitting there, I'm drawing, <laughs> drawing, I'm sitting there and thinking, I'm still don't, I'm not sure that it was, it was a painful week, but we had like a week to put it together because we're going to show this at yep. Pocono. Had another meeting, uh, I think, Saturday morning to go to the, you know, here's what we're getting ready to do. You'll see this same thing again, but right now it's kind of, it's, it's not a double throwdown closed door meeting, but ask questions. And here's the illustration, but the illustration will tell you more than trying to have a long, drawn-out explanation of what, what you're doing. And to this day, the rule book says this is the order that you line up. It doesn't tell you the nuances of it because yeah. you can't explain it. You get here and you get there. So The only way to do it is to workshop it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, just, that's amazing to think about here because, yeah, Double File Restarts instituted in 2009 and goes against basically, I mean, what NASCAR was founded in 1948. So you're talking about 60 years of history and, and racing back to the caution, 2003, 55 years of this is the way it's been done. In both of those instances, you're basically changing five or six decades of mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the way competitors are used to it. And, it's you know, it's like we had the support of the whole Daytona team and the R&D team working on both those projects. But we're going down a path that is pretty dramatic. Yeah, and, totally unprecedented. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we, we quit freezing the field. We had no technology to help us. <laughs> no right. technology to help us. We, we brought in, so we changed in uh, Dover. I don't remember the order, but four or five races later, we're going to Talladega. So we come up with this plan that we're going to bring in extra help and we're going to position them around the racetrack. And the idea was that the help around the racetrack would line score this segment that they see in front of them, which in theory makes all the sense in the world, except that at Talladega, you're three wide, 15, 16 deep, and there's no human <laughs> can do that. I mean, right. it's all you can do to take a video camera and do it. Yeah. So everybody's got an assignment to do what, and then on the second channel they were to call it in, and, and Mr. Helton volunteers to be the one to, to correlate <laughs> that information. I don't remember if the pencil went across the room <laughs> or whatever. He comes up sometime during the race. He says, Monday, you get down and you figure out what we got to get to get this. <laughs> so, so we, no expense. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> it, we knew it wasn't working. We, yeah. you, you could, I won't say you could bluff your way through it, but you had a pretty good idea on some tracks, but not there. We kind of move forward. We have a wreck. We have a big wreck on the back straightaway. And I don't remember if it was Elliot Sadler or Dale Jarrett that we flipped the car on the back. Elmo Langley's driving the caution car. We've blown the back racetrack. We've cleaned it all up. We're still 
with about 10 to go trying to get the order right. And we're looking at every video angle we got. And let's just say we're pushing the rock up, a flat rock up a hill. <laughs> and Elmo says, well, the track's ready. I said, Elmo, I think we need to blow it one more time. I just knew I just brought us another 10 minutes to figure out how to, you know, try to get it as, as, yeah. as good as you could. And, and all you could do is go down and tell the competitors, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Nobody, nobody sit there and said, you know, and, and they understood. They understood exactly what we're getting up, up to. Or, and then as that evolved, two years later, we put the pit road speed in. And that was another project that we had to go out and install all the equipment. We had a good team that did it. And we get there, we announced, say, well, we're going to have... We're going to have monitor pit road speed. And I remember Mark Martin saying this in the Clash driver's meeting. Well, we're going to practice it today. He said, can we reconsider this? Because <laughs> I don't know this is – I said, Mark, sometimes y'all need to be careful what you wish for because you might get it. You got this one. Because yeah. he had you know, he had figured out right. this is not going to be yeah. – It'll be good in the long run, but in the short haul, it's going to be hard. So. Suddenly, I'm okay with stopwatches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. so I got one more for you, David. As we sit here, four races left in the 2019 season. What's it been like for you watching NASCAR in a different way than you had the past 31 years? I still find myself officiating, and I, <laughs> and, and I still find myself, um, because of, of this other project that I'm working on, staying current on the rules and I may notice things that maybe the general fan doesn't it's not because I'm any smarter but I knew how I was going to officiate it or what I was looking for when I was officiating so you'd see something happen or you knew that this didn't happen in the right sequence I don't know that I necessarily miss the travel I do miss the relationships I had with a bunch of people at the racetracks Uh, some of them I have worked with more than 40 years. Clay Campbell comes to mind since we're going to Martinsville this weekend. One of the things I did up there in the first couple of years that I worked up there, I worked in the PR department, and his granddaddy, uh, Clay Earls, had this unique way of, of teaching him. He would sit there and say, I want you to draft on this person, which meant he followed you all five days to see what you were doing. And I think that's one of the biggest things that helps Clay with his understanding of promotion, operation of a racetrack, what the fans want. Martinsville is, is, is a historical racetrack. People don't think about it. It was there the first year. How many racetracks can you name quickly that have been running since the 40s? Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, if they're still racing at the Milwaukee Mile. There's there's just, it's it's a short list. It is a very short list. And yeah. with the way the growth has came over the years, for it to remain and be there and, and, and be really one of the jewels, because a lot of times it's one of the best races of the year, and to be able to modernize something that's that's not got a lot of space, have garages, are the garages fancy? No, they're they're not as fancy as some of these new venues, but they're very functional. And you're putting you're putting the four haul, forty haulers in there. The fans don't have view obstructions, which was one of the things that Mr. Earls would fight you against. He he wanted his fans, if they were sitting on the bottom row, to see across that racetrack because they were there to see the whole thing. And that's that's the beauty, one of the beauties of a short track race. You can see everything. Um, walking out. This spring from Martinsville, I left early. I'm going to go down here and I'm going to stop right here. And I'm going to stand in turn one. And I watched the fans, and they were having a, a just absolute hoot. Similar to what you'd see in some of the video clips that, that was put in from uh, Bowman Gray. They were having a ball. That's what we're here for, to entertain those folks and to have a good race. And when you see that double file restart coming and taking the green and they're driving off in turn one, it's something to behold. It, now, the same thing can be said if you're sitting in the trial of a Daytona, uh, watching them come over uh, the S's at Sonoma and watching that, that wheel kick up. It's fine, and I still enjoy that. And and I won't, I don't have I I miss some of the things that I did. That was I look at it this way. That was my golf game on Sunday. It wasn't work. Now Monday 
through Saturday was work. Some yeah. of it was tedious. Yeah. Some of it was painful. Staring at roll cages, that was work. Staring at roll cages <laughs> or writing rules, that was work. Yeah. But the work got me to be able to do this other thing that I enjoyed. And I enjoyed it because I worked at that craft to try to be as good as I could be. I wasn't perfect. And there's a lot of help in that position because one person can't, he's no way he can see it all. But he's taking in information from five and six sources and he's trying to process it and push it out just as quick as he can. Taking an extra lap takes away from the fan. It may take away the ability of the competitor to use a new set of tires, AKA like Eric Amarello at, at, at the road course as whatever was taking so long took that long, but he lost about two laps. His tires were losing the good and the other guy's tires were probably getting rid of the bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when it was time to go, all of a sudden he lost 17 turns that he may have could have advanced on. Now you can say that one race didn't cost him and it's, it's the body of work. It's yeah. the body of work, but yeah. still, a racer doesn't think of it that way. And you cost me this. Yeah. And, and that was, it's nobody's intention that ever has directed or officiated. It's never to cost anybody. But the, the percentages were against you. At some point, you're not going to be perfect. And you weren't, but you, I you never, did a great job. I never, never, never thought, of, I just wanted to try not to make the same mistake and be, uh, humble about it if you know if it did, i'll tell you i've made a mistake yeah and i'd go out and try to fix it there's there's some mistakes that are made in a race that you cannot equitably correct you can try to correct but you can't get it back uh perfectly and you have to kind of accept that going but again you won't take that don't don't discount it try to improve on it so you don't make the same mistake twice. Are you going to work with NASCAR at all? And I don't think I had a chance. The series you're working with now, I, are, are they mostly like lower? Like They're lower. Track? Okay, lower. They're lower. Okay. Any chance that you would work with the series we've heard of in the future? Or? I'm open for anything. Yeah. I, I'm sitting there and over the summer, I, I went through a list of things that I needed to catch up around the house. Uh, <laughs> and now all those are done. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're getting pretty close until the windstorm came through the other night, and there's two more trees to get cut up. But okay. I, I'm, I'm getting there, and yeah. the nice thing is it's not anything that, you know, I'm not getting the pressure from my wife to do them. These are things that, that I wanted to get done. Uh, so there's, there's time available. Hopefully we can find avenues to... Uh, I want, to use, I want to continue to use my knowledge and, and whether it's helping the broadcast because I, I think sometimes like Sunday's race at Kansas the guys were spot on on their explanation there's other times that I think it could help them if you pointed out something that they didn't recognize not to, not to call anybody out or say somebody made a mistake but it, everything about a race is cause and effect. And, and if this doesn't go right, this is affecting this or this is affecting that or whatever. There's an opportunity there. I, I, I don't necessarily care about traveling again. It's, I went somewhere this summer and did some work at a racetrack on the airplane. And I sit there, and it was four good flights. Four good flights. What am I doing on this airplane? <laughs> I, I, I didn't miss that at all. Well, uh, I'm certainly glad to hear you are, though, up for sharing your knowledge because we'd like to keep seeing you at the racetrack. And we, we loved having you on the show here today and appreciate you uh, spending so much time sitting down and telling all these stories, David. I really, well, really well, I enjoyed it. Well, thank you it. for having me, and, and I could probably tell you a few more stories. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> maybe we'll do it again sometime. All right, sir. All right, thanks. Thank you. Our thanks again to David Hoots for all of his insight and time. After 31 years of virtually running the show in the NASCAR scoring tower, the man has a lot of stories. We appreciate that he shared some of them with us. And also interesting to hear about his post-NASCAR career in consulting with race series and teams on how to write and interpret rulebook language. As you heard, David Hoots is a fount of knowledge when it comes to race procedures, so he has a lot to offer on those fronts. I hope we continue to see him involved in the industry, and if so, I hope he comes back to join us again sometime on the NASCAR NBC podcast to tell us more of those stories. 
So speaking of the podcast, think of this episode as my off-season, end-of-the-year holiday gift. I don't know when we will return with another episode or whether it will be narrative or conversational style, but I promise we will be back. And as always, I appreciate everyone's support, and I hope everyone has a good holiday season and a happy new year. And any feedback, I'm always listening on Twitter. Find me at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.